Remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we come before you this morning humbled by the sacrifice of your son and even humbled more by your great power that raised him from the dead. And we ask that you would pour out that power through your spirit in our lives and our hearts. Transform us, mold us, bind us together as your people here who live out and proclaim your kingdom in advance. And so, Lord, be with us this morning. Feed us through your word and through your body and blood at the table. And so we commend ourselves to your love and care. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. And uh, happy Easter. Don't forget, we are still in Easter this week, and we are for several more, and we still need to rejoice Maybe even more than we do typically on Sundays, but we need to rejoice every day of the week for the resurrection, the power of God that was poured out on Jesus that is made available to us through his spirit. Turn with me, if you, if you will, to our Old Testament reading. Hopefully I'm not becoming boring by going to the Old Testament so often, but turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. I'll be, I'll be referencing in, in, in different places there in that chapter, and you might want to take a look at that as we do. Imagine with me for a moment that on February the 23rd of this year, that's the day before Russia invaded Ukraine, someone came up to you with a hot investment opportunity. There's this property, beautiful property. A portion of it is ready for development. Another portion is a profitable farm, which no one's ever heard of, but there's a profitable farm on it. And the, the owner is motivated to sell. He's ready to negotiate a favorable price. It just happens to be in the far eastern region of Ukraine. Would you be interested? The correct answer is no. <laughs> no. Who in their right mind would want to purchase this property at this time? Yeah, this is exactly what God calls Jeremiah to do in the context of our Old Testament lesson from chapter 32 of his prophecy. The Babylonian army was amassing troops around the outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, preparing to lay siege to it, just as Russia was encircling a portion of Ukraine back in February. Jeremiah is in the city under arrest, so he's doubly imprisoned, not only by the Babylonians outside of the walls, but he's in the court's guard. He's imprisoned there by King Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and King Zedekiah has put him in prison for preaching for years now that God would send the Babylonians to destroy the city. Because of their wickedness, their idolatry, and their compromises with the cultures around them. And in the middle of all this, God speaks to Jeremiah in prison, in Jerusalem, besieged by the Babylonians. And he tells him that you're going to have your good old cousin Haman, Hanamel, Hanamel, good old cousin Hanamel is going to come, and he's going to want to sell you a field, a piece of property. Not to, don't worry, though, that this property is already in, in, under control of the Babylonians. Your cousin's going to come and want to sell you this property, and you need to buy it. You need to buy it. And so Jeremiah obediently purchases this parcel of land when there appears to be no future for him, or even for anyone else, for that matter, on it. And yet, Jeremiah, in all this does it obediently, but after he 
he completes the transaction after the, the deeds have been written up, after the silver has been weighed out and paid to his cousin, Jeremiah prays in response. And in his prayer, he has a question. A question that he states indirectly at the conclusion there in verses 16 through 25. And Jeremiah begins this prayer by declaring that nothing, nothing is too big for the God who made heaven and earth. And then in verses 20 through 22, he recounts God's past acts of redemption and love when he led Israel through the Red Sea during the Exodus. And then even after that, he leads them by power and by his power and wonders and miracles. He leads them to inherit the promised land in Canaan. But in verses 23 through 24, he also states, he recounts that Israel responded to God's redemption and love with sin and disloyalty. And as a result, the Babylonians were encircled around the city as his act of judgment. And then we come to the question indirectly stated finally there in verse 25. And yet you asked me to buy a field at such a time as this. You who made heaven and earth, for whom nothing is too hard. You who parted the Red Sea. You who led Israel into the land and secured it for them by miracles and signs and wonders. You want me in prison in a besieged city to purchase property. Why? That's the indirect question. Why? At the very moment when Israel's past sin and disloyalty had crashed into an inescapable present, right? The judgment of God. The Babylonians were around the city. At that moment, God asked Jeremiah to invest in an inconceivable future. Invest tangibly in the future. Just as if someone approached you to invest in land in eastern Ukraine, where a future restoration appears unthinkable at present. And so we too, if we were in Jeremiah's shoes, would also say and ask, why? Why do this? And here's the answer to Jeremiah's why. God, God sees beyond our limited human horizons to the future restoration he has sovereignly determined for his people and for his creation. God sees beyond our limited human horizons to the future restoration he has sovereignly determined for his people and his creation. Jeremiah in that moment cannot see it. He has been preaching for years and years and years to no effect, it seems, that God's judgment is coming. Not restoration, judgment. And when, God, and when the moment God's judgment is there, God says, I'm actually going to be redeeming people. He doesn't know what to do with that. Why in the world? Isn't the judgment supposed to happen first? Aren't you supposed to be judging? What is this bit about restoring? There's no restoration in sight. It's not even on the horizon. Judgment's on the horizon. We see the Babylonians. We don't see the restoration. So God sees, though, beyond our human limitations. If we only look at God's command for Jeremiah to purchase this field within the horizon of human sight and understanding, we will fail to see its significance. We may, in fact, question whether it is significant at all. So how do we see beyond our limited horizon, our limited human horizon of sight and understanding? The key is to look at God. 
This is what God says. Listen to verse 36 and 37, at least the first part of verse 37. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say. It's so interesting here because God is now quoting Jeremiah from verse 24 early in the chapter. Concerning the city of which you say it's under siege by all these by sword, by famine, by pestilence. But hasn't God already told him to say all these things leading up? He has. But God is saying, this is what you're saying. I'm saying something different now. This is what you say. Behold, I. You know, I've done this before. The word behold is, is a word that's supposed to catch your attention. Like, like that, yeah, like that. So I've done that before, and I've seen people, like, I thought they lost their, their soul in that moment. So I want to give you a warning. That's what that word means. Behold, like, pay attention right here. Look, I. Look at me. That's what God is saying. Look at me. You want to know how to expand your, your vision, how to adopt a God's size or a God's horizon of his world? Look at him. Don't, don't look at all these other things. Don't become so fixated on the message you've preached for so long about judgment, Jeremiah. Now, since judgment is here, I'm going to be doing some new things too. I'm going to be restoring. Proclaim that work now. Go and buy that field as a sign of hope that one day fields and vineyards and olive groves will be bought and sold again in this land. Normal life will resume here. Look at me. At one level, of course, God simply expands in our reading from verses 36 through 41 what he briefly stated in verse 15, a statement that had had given meaning to the purchase of land in a country on the brink of extinction. And there in that verse, in verse 15, the Lord said, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Right? Because people will come back from exile and get on with doing those sorts of things. And so what Jeremiah had done in lonely faith, right? in lonely faith, the only one buying property at that time, no one right now in Ukraine is buying property. Jeremiah was the only one at that time buying property. What Jeremiah had done in lonely faith will again become the routine when the countryside will be repopulated at God's restoration. And all these things did come to pass in some measure when Israel returned from exile under Cyrus's decree 70 or more years later. But verses 39 through 41 lift our eyes beyond the immediate horizon of human sight to a divine horizon a divine horizon that's glowing with ultimate and infinite perfections. The perfections of a new creation. Just listen to it there. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. It's the only time God ever says that in the Old Testament. He personifies his heart and soul in that way. With all my heart and with all my soul, I will do this. It seems impossible to read these descriptions of what God will do without being transported, without being transported beyond Israel's return from captivity to the description of the new creation that we hear in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. There we see God in all his majesty descending on earth to dwell forever with those whom he will have planted there. 
when the inhabitants of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, not this old Jerusalem encircled by the Babylonians, but a new Jerusalem, when those inhabitants will have one heart and one way, when the destruction of all evil will herald an eternity where the original good of creation will be ensured by God's joy. I will rejoice to do them good. God's joy will ensure the goodness of creation. In these verses, God is giving Jeremiah a glimpse of not just some return from exile, but a glimpse of the ultimate future beyond even the final judgment, the vision of an everlasting covenant, of a people enjoying the undiluted goodness of God, a covenant people, pardoned, purified, and planted. He's looking at the benefits of the resurrection. This is none other than the future promised by God the Father, accomplished by the Son through his cross and the resurrection, and guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit that takes up residence in our lives. You see, through his cross and resurrection, Jesus purchased not merely a field, but the entire creation and everyone on it. And he purchased it with a price infinitely more than the than the seven shekels of silver that Jeremiah weighed out in prison to be paid. And at his ascension to the right hand of God in heaven, he took with him his very human, resurrected body that still bore the scars of Calvary as the title deed to this earth. A security eternally durable, more durable than the jars of clay with which Baruch took Jeremiah's deed and tucked it away in them for safekeeping. And one day, Jesus, the risen king, will return to take up residence here on earth to dwell with his people in covenant love. Ashley and I bought our home a month before we moved in. Jesus has purchased the earth for himself. He has redeemed it, redeemed it for God. And he will come when he comes again and take up residence here. He will assume his home. You see, God allows Jeremiah to see this divine future horizon so that he and others in Israel might hope, might hope at a time when the circumstances argued against hope. That's why it's so hard to see the hope here. That's why it's so hard to make sense of what God is doing. But when we begin to see, when we begin to look at God and see his horizon of things, we're given the ability to hope even in the midst of circumstances that speak against hope. And not only that, he has given us the benefits of that future new creation now in this present old creation. Through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, God has made a new and everlasting covenant with us. We hear it every week around the table in this liturgy. He's made a new and everlasting covenant with us. We are his people and he is our God. By faith and repentance and through the waters of baptism, God unites us to Jesus' death and resurrection, giving us a new heart, a new way, a way to fear him properly in this world. He gives us new life empowered by his indwelling spirit. As Paul says in his Corinthian correspondence, we are new creations. New creation is here. 
And he is planting us as those new creations in this place, in Winston-Salem. The movement of scripture isn't that we go away to heaven to the final new creation. What is, it, what is, what is the image portrayed for us in Revelation? Where is the new city? Where is the city of God, the dwelling of God, descend? It's descending to this earth, to this planet. This is heaven waiting to be revealed for us. Waiting for God to come and cleanse all wrongs, to do away with all wickedness and evil. This place where God has planted you right here in Winston-Salem is a place for you to live out the new life that you have been given in Christ. The new creation is to be lived out right now here. He has planted us here so that we might live as advanced signs, advanced signs of his coming kingdom. And like Jeremiah, who purchased the field with his, from his cousin as a sign act, right? That's a visible, symbolic act declaring hope in God. And so, when, so like Jeremiah, who purchased the field from his cousin as a sign act, declaring hope in God's future, his future, his desire to restore our lives. Our lives are to be lived as advanced signs of God's heavenly kingdom, displaying the new life that God freely gives to those who turn to him. So what do I mean when I say that we are to live as advanced signs? Well, if you've ever driven down south down I-95, I do this quite frequently when we go home to Florida, but if you've ever driven down I-95, you've driven, you're coming out of North Carolina, you're going to South Carolina, you're going to Georgia, you're going to see signs, billboards uh, for Charleston, for Savannah, for maybe even Jekyll Island, and you're going to be seeing that these billboards that are like, this is a desirable place to vacation, maybe even relocate, right? This is what these signs are intending you to do. They're, they're showing you before you get there, even if you've never been there, what it looks like there. And so often they have these gorgeous photos of, of key landmarks or of people having so much fun on these billboards. And you're like, I want to go there. I want to be a part of that. These billboards are what we might call advanced signs. They give us a glimpse of what life looks like in these cities before ever visiting. They invite us to come and experience this life, like what life is like in Charleston, what life is like in Savannah. I don't know if, uh, Brooks, you guys have a particular opinion about which one is better. I'm assuming you might say Charleston. Okay, well... There is, bar none, more south of the border signs moving than anywhere else, you know, anything else in the interstate. No, but we, we see those signs, we see those billboards as advanced signs of those places, and they're encouraging us. They're showing us what life is like there. They're, show, they're inviting us to come and participate, and this is what God has called, has, this, is why, this is what God has called, gathered, and gifted the church to be. You are to be a billboard. You are to be an advanced sign of that future horizon, that new creation horizon that God is bringing about in this world and will bring about fully when he comes. Our lives, every aspect of them, from our home and family life to our work and civic life, our lives are to provide a glimpse of what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven. Our lives are to embody in our everyday mundane existence the glorious horizon that Jeremiah could only see from a far distance. We actually don't just see it, we get to experience it. We get to experience new creation right here, right now. 
and we demonstrate by our way of life the values of God's kingdom, and we embody the resurrection life that will one day characterize of all of creation when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And as we close, how do we live as advanced signs of God's kingdom? I think this is particularly poignant in in light of uh, the article the men read at G.K. Chesterton uh, last week. I think that these, these things are important for us to ponder, not only these, but maybe even more. How do we live as advanced signs of God's kingdom right now in what one author calls the negative world where Christianity is, is perceived as, as a social negative? There are three things, briefly. One, we must really come to grips with the reality that God does not send us out into the world as advanced signs all alone, on our own, as lone rangers. Bearing witness to Jesus and God's coming kingdom simply cannot happen in isolation. It cannot happen in isolation. You see, in God's wisdom, he has decided that a people, a people, not a person, not individual people, but a people, a society, a community, a culture, a new humanity, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, will bear witness to his glorious to his glorious new creation, to the goodness of his son, Jesus. Therefore, we must take this call seriously to be a new people and all that that entails. This means we are to embody and live out a culture distinguishable, distinguishable from the fallen ones around us. That means we are about the work of making culture, not just engaging it to transform it, but actually embodying and living out an alternative culture defined by God's glorious horizon of new creation, not by the limited horizon of human sight. We cannot then engage or interact with the non-Christian culture around us as if it is some neutral good or just neutral. Right? We live in contested territory. The scripture is not shy about that. God has not called us to engage with fallen human culture so much as he has called us to embody a counterculture as advanced signs of his kingdom and to call those in, this, in these fallen cultures to be removed from them, to be transferred, to be translated from them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And in this emerging post-Christian context in which we live where to be an Orthodox Christian is increasingly viewed as a social negative, we must consider how we are to maintain a faithful witness, not only in our generation, but in three, four, and five generations from now. We have to begin to think. We don't have the luxury of just worrying about ourselves any longer. To be advanced signs of God's kingdom means that we must cultivate and embody a thick community with a robust and creative culture that, on the one hand, exposes the lies and idols of our fallen cultures in which we live, right? By example, by juxtaposition, exposing lies and idols. And on the other, offers an oasis of truth and covenant love to those who would turn in faith and repentance to God. That's the kind of community we need to be. One that by our very life, as advanced signs, exposes as lies and idols what, is that, what are those things in our fallen culture. And then also... We are an oasis of truth and covenant love. Two, yet only a vigorous spirituality will sustain us in this task. Only deep roots in Christ as individuals and as a community will sustain us in our work as advanced signs of God's kingdom because it is beyond us. It is beyond us. This task is too much for us. 
if we are to be sustained in a faithful and active witness to the lordship of the risen King Jesus in the midst of this fallen culture, then we must cultivate a vibrant, a vibrant spirituality so that the contemplative life, the contemplative life nourishes the active life and vice versa. We don't have the ability just to be, well, I'm not a contemplative person or I'm not an active person. All of us need to develop a deep and abiding spirituality that informs our active life and we need to allow our active life to inform our contemplative life. We cannot sustain a faithful witness without taking spiritual nourishment from scripture, from prayer, from community, from meditation, and from fellowship. And then finally, we can live as advanced signs within the fallen cultures around us in hope. We can do that in hope. This is not something that we have to become cast down or downtrodden or or just bummed out about or depressed. We can do this in hope. We can be sure that because of what Christ has done, what he has already done, the end of universal history is sure. The end of the story is sure. God's kingdom will come in glorious fullness. However, that day has not come yet. And so sometimes it may seem like a mirage, like a dream. Therefore, our lives as advanced signs of his coming kingdom must be characterized by what I think Wendell Berry captures so well in his phrase, a difficult hope, a difficult hope. It is no wonder then that scripture repeatedly, repeatedly calls believers, no matter how hard their circumstances, to live in hope. Live in hope. Hope is that confident certainty and that secure assurance that because of what Jesus has accomplished, God's purposes for his creation will be realized by his power and even through our labor in this world, energized by his spirit. So may God help us, may God truly help us by his spirit to cultivate a thick and a deep culture that is informed by the the new creation horizon of God and not by our limited human horizons. May we also, may God also help us to cultivate a deep spirituality, a deep and abiding spirituality that enables us, that enables us, like Paul, to endure hardships for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. And may God also help us to do this all with not a face that's downcast or out of depression or anxiety, but to do this with hope. Hope that one day, God will come back in his son, Jesus Christ, with his title deed to earth, and he will make claim, take claim over the heavens and the earth, and new creation will be here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.